Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute, or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Right Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CNE and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CNE and CE content creation as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME and CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals. This podcast is for you. Have you been exploring ChatGPT and generative artificial intelligence? In today's episode, we're back in the world of generative AI with Sean Soda, who is the founder of medical content platform Graphy AI. And we're exploring the promise and pitfalls of generative AI for healthcare content creators, including CME and CE professionals. As you know, healthcare content and CME and CE in particular require compliance with federal and professional policies, as well as factual accuracy and trustworthiness. Yet while on the one hand, generative AI has become a game changer in content creation, by significantly accelerating the process and potentially enhancing productivity. On the other, this technology comes with limitations, particularly in terms of ethics and safety. Sean shares how the Graphy AI platform aims to address these shortcomings by building a platform specifically for people like us who create content in healthcare for health professionals and for patients. Sean predicts that generative AI, which is not just text-based, but also image-based, could be used to educate patients or to coach health professionals on how to perform procedures, like administering CPR. So grab your earbuds, make a cup of tea, and join us to explore how to communicate with AI platforms, how to ensure that AI-generated content is aligned with your learner needs, and how generative AI can help writers at different stages of the writing process. Hello and welcome, Sean. Hey, thank you so much for having me today. It's good to see you. So let's start by talking a little bit about who you are and a little something about your work, a little teaser here. Yeah, sure. So uh, hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Sean. I'm honestly a tech geek at heart for the most part. Uh, (laughs) I've been working in the AI ML space. For the last five or six years, I hailed from the IBM Watson community from a couple of years ago, back when it was it was everywhere, essentially, on social media and everything. 
And that's kind of where I found my passion for bridging technology with real world problems and finding unique ways to create value for people and organizations. I'm currently the founder of a generative AI company called Graphy, which is essentially just a medical content writing platform built specifically for the healthcare persona. So really excited about what we're going to talk about today. So let's talk about generative AI. And forgive my ignorance, but is IBM Watson generative AI or is that described as something different? Is that a different type of technology? Yeah, so IBM Watson was, uh, I think almost 10 years ago, beat a champion in Jeopardy. Uh, it's not generative AI. It's a separate suite of AI products that they used to have. Uh, and I think it's still in existence. I think they're kind of more enterprise focused for the most part. So I think they're just getting into the generative AI space actually right now with uh, an offering that just came out called Watson X. Mm. But a lot of the hype's been around OpenAI and Google and Anthropic and other companies like that. So. And what attracted you to generative AI? Yeah, so I think two and a half or so years ago, I was uh, I kind of saw generative AI as kind of being honestly a very cool technology, and I was like, wow, this is something that could definitely enhance productivity or change the way companies focus on different initiatives. And I saw this as being honestly implementable in almost any industry, any use case, any application, platform, etc. And so I chose to take the plunge and dive deep into the space and kind of learn a lot about it. And uh, over the past couple of years, I feel like I've understood its idiosyncrasies and what it does well, what it doesn't do well, and kind of where the technology is at right now in a realistic standpoint. So uh, honestly, it's just really cool stuff, which is what drew which is what drew me to it for the most part. So I do want to dig into, you know, obviously its implications for healthcare and medicine and clinical practice and and content creation, but. You mentioned that you're you're interested in, in in what it does well and what it doesn't do well. So in general terms, what does generative AI do well and what does it not do well? Yeah, so I think so generative AI is such a hot topic right now and everyone's yeah. sort of, you know, can this work for me? Can this not work for me? And it certainly has its limitations right now, but you know, we're I think at that point of just at, at that inflection point, kind of like an iPhone moment again where you're just going to see 10x, 20x improvements in productivity, just in the same way the iPhone did in 2004, 2005, I think. I think, you know, there is a lot of doubt about what the technology can do. And I think everyone has should be able to have the reservations about what it can do and what it can't do. I think something that does really well right now is just accelerate the process of content creation dramatically. Uh, one thing, some things that it can do well is, well, does it handle that in a ethical or private manner and you know what all what are the safety parameters that can be used for it and what if the ai is wrong or what if it hallucinates and there's all these little ifs ands and buts that come with it as well and so i think we are just six months ago or seven months ago when chat gpt came out it kind of revolutionized the way you know people thought about technology and it was one of the first products ever to hit i think 100 million subscriber users i think in like the shortest amount of time which is insane so it's great to see, you know, all the technology that's coming out and the companies that are being innovative in this space. And it's just a burgeoning space in AI, which is good to see. You know, I read something recently uh, in the last week or so, and I can't remember where I read it, but I'll try and, and fish it out. But it was a statistic that suggested that something like only 20% or I think it was 19% of the population has actually tried ChatGBT. So despite the fact that there's all this buzz and all this kind of discussion on the social media platforms and in the news and so on, 
you know, it's we're still talking about millions of people, obviously, but you know, it's not as many people as you would think. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just kind of let you respond to that. Why? Why? Why is that? Why do we get that the sense that ChatGPT is about to take over the world? Yeah, I think there are obviously people who are at the helm of their computers nonstop and are monitoring what's going on. I think you know, there's so many ads that you see. Like, for example, there was a there was a a building that was covered up in plaster and outside said ChatGPT finished this building. And it was like, dot, 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 you know, your skills and you know, there's some things AI just can't do. And so naturally I think there's some industries that are just very AI averse, very risk averse and don't want anything to do with that. I think at some point as time goes on though, when people, you know, are still on social media, for instance, or have any sort of platform that can be integratable with generative AI, they're going to get a firsthand taste of what it's going to feel like and say, huh. And I think it's over time, it's going to be similar to how a, a sort of a phenomenon spreads. You're going to see a lot of that kind of change and that kind of acceleration and rapid growth in usage for generative AI. Uh, I can't, I'm not quite sure why people don't know, why people don't use it much. I'm sure there are obviously skeptics out there, but I think there's definitely, you know, at some point in the next five years or so, everyone's going to know exactly what it is and probably have an account with OpenAI at some point. So. So let's talk about, I mean, obviously you came from IBM Watson, that's very much in the healthcare space and Graphy AI is also directed toward the healthcare space, but talking in sort of general terms, how do you see generative AI affecting the creation of content in medicine and healthcare? Now, obviously there, there are so many different types of content that are created in this space. Mm-hmm. You've got regulatory you've got promotional, you've got consumer health and patient education, continuing medical education for healthcare professionals, mm-hmm. and, you know, pet parent education in the uh, small animal space. Yeah. So when you think about the value or the impact that generative AI is going to have on content creation, what specifically are you thinking about? Yeah. So I guess from just my experience in the space so far, medical and healthcare content creation is a huge pain point for organizations and hospitals and startups and companies and group practices and private practices. I mean, just from hundreds of customer conversations I've had, people will say, oh man, it takes us a month to get one blog out because it has to go through so many vetting processes from Mm -hmm. Sorting, sourcing the right pieces of information to figuring out what can best reel in the audience to why is my practice or this company the best thing for this specific solution to is it even correct and from a regulatory standpoint. And there's so many aspects to it that just make it such a draining process. So I see generative AI as kind of helping in two main aspects. The first is time to create the content is probably the most unpredictable part of writing the actual content. And the second one is factual accuracy of the content as well. It's just another stressful part. During COVID, there was so much misinformation out there. And the concept of medical misinformation, honestly, has stretched outside of COVID now. And everyone starts to doubt different things. It's true. There was an Instagram reel or TikTok. I can't remember what it was. But there was one guy who pretty much pulls up to McDonald's line and says, you know, there's just so much information out there. I don't know what's right and what's wrong. And this is an example. Let me tell you. And he pulls up on Google, he's like, does coffee cause blindness? And there were a hundred articles that says, yes, coffee causes blindness. And then he says, does coffee cure blindness? And there are a hundred articles that say, yes, coffee cures blindness. And he's like, which one is it? (laughs) 
And so I think the idea of misinformation, I think, is another huge part is why I think given, you know, people's beliefs and sources and, you know, their their trusted Bibles of medical literature, you can kind of then enforce that and say, hey, from this article or from these sources or from this clinical study, I can claim ABC. And so I believe that, you know, what we've seen and, and witnessed with generative AI is the ability to scale content tremendously from a time perspective. And it's kind of crazy. There's some writers out there who don't even come from a medical background, while others do. They're former physicians or, or MDs or DOs. Uh, and you just see a large standard deviation in terms of how long it takes to actually create content. And with generative AI, you can essentially shrink that time down to almost a fixed operation for each piece of content. So I see kind of honestly impacting more so the times aspect and also the the factual accuracy of the content as well. So I'm curious about the time aspect. Where do you pull that data from? So our data is pulled from so two main aspects. So we say, hey, you know, we currently pull and pull content from PubMed and Medline Plus and other sources of medical literature where you can say, hey, I want to type an article on the latest information from multiple sclerosis, right? So I can pull up the latest articles from PubMed or any other publisher, for example, and be able to say, yes, I, you know, it's, it's buffet style. I can come to the platform. I can say, I want a little bit of this article, a little bit of that source, a little bit of that citation. And I want to create, use these four or five sources to create one blog for my site as an example. And so that's from a source perspective. And so with generative AI, right, you don't know where the data comes from. It's a black box effect. But with our platform, it's more data transparent. It's more, hey, I can feed in these three, four or five articles and boom, out comes things that I know I would normally use, but it just does the writing for me to begin with. And that's just the content generation part. We're going to slowly expand into the content ideation stage as well as the content revision stage as well. So that's just one part of the whole stack ultimately. So I want to come back to that. I think I wasn't clear in my question, which is, you know, the claim that it takes a long time to generate content for, for writers to actually write. So I'm wondering where you get that information from and what, oh, oh, oh. yeah. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, it, it's honestly, it, so, you, so just to come back to your question, it's where do you see people spending a lot of time on creating content? And just where do, it's honestly just from the people yeah. that I've been meeting with. And it comes from the fact that, as I mentioned before, there are so many people who create marketing collateral and healthcare education content providers that aren't actual MD, or like they're not actual physicians or they come from you know, just non-medical backgrounds. And that can be dangerous when, you know, you're pretty much flooding someone with so much information that they might be able, they might get something wrong, right? And so it takes, you know, a couple of days at least for a person to understand what they're even writing about to begin with. And if you hand someone a clinical trial, for example, there's a lot of vocabulary in there that can really only be understood by a select few individuals. And so I see there's a lot of opportunity for generative AI to essentially parse all that content and say, hey, here's really what this clinical trial says in a very simple layman's terms. And here's some things that you can write about from that perspective. So, okay. I, I, I get what you're, you're saying there. As a professional medical writer who isn't an MD and who has worked in the continuing medical education space for almost 20 years, I mean, I would argue, and I think some listeners would argue that if you're a professional medical writer, then you you build up the skills necessary to be able to interpret clinical trial data and Absolutely. also to be able to write about complex topics for you know whichever audience you're 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 writing for 
I get the argument that there could be people who aren't necessarily doing the kind of fact-checking that I think you're getting at here. But let's talk about that fact-checking, because in that process of using technology to speed up the writing process in in a generative sense, Mm -hmm. you're still left with, well, I think you're left with a couple of things. One is, no, probably three. One is somebody still needs to fact-check the information that is being generated. And we we know, I mean, you talked about misinformation, but we know that even in the peer review publication world, there are still, you know, errors and fabrications and falsifications. I mean, the retraction rate of journals, of journal articles, you know, keeps increasing. So that's one thing. I guess another thing is once you have that initial I don't know if you're calling it an outline, but let's just call it an outline. And you, you can circle back to that. That still has to be shaped into the content that the particular audience needs because generative AI isn't necessarily in tune with your audience needs. Although I suspect mm-hmm. you'll have something to say to that as well in terms of prompts. And then the third thing is ethics. So three, three kind of areas there. And we, maybe we can break them down one or one, one by one. So the Mm. first one is, okay, you've gone through the process, you've identified some articles, you've fed them into the technology, the platform, and now you have, uh, let's just call it a first draft or an outline. Can you talk me through what the advantages of that are and what happens next? Yeah. So the sense that I have gotten from the writing community and every writer kind of sometimes defer has different opinions or different approaches to writing content. Typically from what I've seen is there's kind of an ideating state of like, what am I going to write about? And you know, what topic is relevant and you know, what's the, who's the audience and what's the KPI that I'm trying to chase after. Second one is kind of the researching or the, you know, what are the sources that I want to pull from and what seems relevant and what's the most up to date. And the next one is kind of outlining it saying, okay, I've read through it. I now I want to structure this in kind of a similar way. And then it's actually writing the content and then it's revising the content after that. And so I believe personally where generative AI is right now is I think it can do a little bit of each of those steps right now. And being able to take something and say, and I think to your point exactly, right, there are some very seasoned medical writers out there who can crank this out in one day, but there's some medical writers out there that'll take a week to get out one article, for instance. And so the benefit of this technology that I think from what we've seen so far is you can say, hey, rather than taking that large standard deviation from one day to seven days, you can parse it down to six hours, for instance, to get a piece of content out. And it's designed, and I think you mentioned it pretty well, it's it's, it's a first draft, right? It's never going to go straight to publishing. It still must go through the same vetting process and revision, and revision process. But I think it's designed to say, hey, I put in, you know, these X number of sources, and I know that it only looked at these sources alone. And I now have a first draft that I know comes exactly with, you know, I, I'm able to see what parts of these outlines were able to kind of create this content. And then I can add, come in and add in my brand voice, my call to actions, retweak, rephrase, restructure, et cetera. But I see it kind of being kind of, okay, rather than taking, you know, hours, even days, you can get a first draft done in minutes, essentially. But again, I think to your point, there is still a compliance aspect where all the content that goes out still must be reviewed by someone at the end of the day. And so the beauty behind this is it's never going to be a replacement for writers. It's always going to be an augmentation of skill sets and productivity. 
So I, I completely get that. And I do I do use, you know, ChatGPT myself just to kind of play around in the content creation process for my own work, not for clients' work. It does sound to me, though, as though we're talking mostly about, I want to say, consumer health education or maybe marketing pieces rather than, for instance, you know, continuing education content that has to be very evidence-based and mm-hmm has to meet, you know, strict requirements to be fair and balanced in its right. you know, presentation of information. I mean, how does that resonate with you and how you're thinking about this? Yeah, so I think there are many ways in which AI, so I think right now what AI can do really well is be able to parse very simple plain text. But when you get to things like clinical trials and stuff, you have charts, you have diagrams, you have some of the complex like molecular structures, for instance, I mean, it'll get very technical very quickly. And I don't think it's quite there yet to the point at which it will be able to understand tabular data yet. And there are some platforms that are getting to that stage, but having an image of, you know, a dermatological issue and being able to classify that and know exactly what that is, Mm -hmm. you're far from that right now. But uh, you'll be able to kind of see some products out there right now who are essentially saying, hey, you know, if you put in basic websites or basic blogs or long paragraphs, we can get it pretty quickly. Anything more than that, like complex infographics or anything are a little tricky. And so my head initially goes to that application layer in the marketing space and the consumer ed- and the patient education space, because a lot of the content has been filtered down so much that it's already simplified enough for AI to understand it. Mm. But the next step is in saying, hey, I'm going to feed you PowerPoints and PDFs and a bunch of technical documents for this one specific thing, and now take a couple more steps and skip that process to the patient side. Uh, and we're, we're getting there. I think I've seen some really cool products that are able to do that, but on a mass scale process, not quite there yet. Oh, that's interesting. And thank you for explaining that to someone who is not a technical person. And so that kind of raises another question for me, which is, you know, we've been talking about ChatGPT, and we're going to talk about Graphy AI a little bit, but you mentioned platforms. What are we talking about when we talk about the generative platforms that are out there? What sort of things are people using to create content in the, the healthcare space? So right now, there are not many ones out there. There are, so as you mentioned before, right, there are so many forms of content across healthcare, right? From the basic patient education, caregiver advice, clinical navigation, all the way up to here is sales material for a pharmaceutical drug, for instance, for physicians, for example. There are a couple of products out there that I think do a little bit of everything. There's some products that I know dive really deep into some. So, you know, some are able to take in really specific research papers and summarize them or find research, find relevant research papers and summarize them as well. But one thing that I see is actually becoming a huge play recently is stable diffusion. So stable diffusion is kind of this open source software where you're able to create images from text. And I think as time goes on, it's not there yet, but I see a lot of applications right now in, in, uh, in healthcare where let's say you want to create an infographic on how a patient should administer an EpiPen, for example. You can train an algorithm to kind of walk through the steps of creating five, six images on how to open up an EpiPen, how to administer it, where to administer it. And that can save you thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours of time, essentially. So I think the image creation space is huge right now. And we see a lot of companies outside of healthcare that are already adopting that. Like, for example, Coca-Cola is adopting Dolly, for example, to create marketing material around their Coke cans, for instance. So I, I think it's around the corner that 
generative AI, which is not just text-based, but can also be image-based, can definitely get to the point where you can start educating patients or coaching nurses on how to administer CPR, for example. And of course, the next logical the next logical step after that is, okay, if I can do images, then let's do videos after that. And so you can kind of see once you get images going, you can get many, many images done and boom, you have a video then. That is so interesting. I do actually use beautiful AI for slide development. And yeah, it, yeah. I think it has that technology because it's just introduced a new feature where you can you can do exactly as you described. You can yeah. use text to describe something. But I have to say the the images that are generated are they, they don't quite work for me, but maybe that's maybe that's an issue around prompting. Can we talk a little bit about that question of prompts? This is something that I see again and again on LinkedIn yeah, where people yeah. sharing <laughs> You know, extensive prompts. Where are you on prompts, Sean? Prompts. <laughs> I have a bit of a hot take on prompt engineering, to be honest. Uh, so Go for it. Everyone kind of has this belief that the next skill set you must have is prompt engineering. The way to communicate with these large language models is via prompt engineering. And to get the most out of these platforms, you need to know how to speak with them. I think that skill set was valuable maybe six months ago, like when ChatGPT came out. But this is such a fast and this is such a fast paced technology and environment that my belief is I actually think the platform should take a lot of that burden off of the user because every platform is different and it's like speaking different languages. And it's like if you came with a whole different dialect and you came with a hundred of them, right? it's impossible for a user to learn how to communicate with every single one of these, right? And they're not going to be standardized. So I actually think, you know, based off of just where this, this industry is heading is I think a lot of companies are going to start adopting what's called a, a, an AI persona, which is, for example, maybe the content that I write as an ophthalmologist is different than a dermatologist, which is different from an orthopedic surgeon. And I think when an AI is able to recognize the language or the type of style that a dermatologist writes versus an orthopedic surgeon, the way that they write, they're going to prompt a platform in very different ways. But I think it's up to the platform to pick up on it and say, you're a dermatologist. You're going to care about these things. You're going to write in this tone. You're going to write in this style, in this pace, in this manner. Very different from an orthopedic surgeon. And so I see AI platforms actually taking the prompt engineering out of the user's hands and actually enhancing it on their own. And maybe it'll take a little bit of fine tuning, but I think ultimately it'll be it'll get to the point where prompt engineering is going to become an obsolete sort of skill as time goes on. Oh, that's interesting. And what about the question of, you know, one of the things I hear people talking about and writing about all the time is that you can teach ChatGPT to recognize your voice and to produce output in a way that really reflects your concerns and interests. Is that is that an oversimplification? simplification from a layperson's a non a non-engineer's perspective you know i used to i used to hate writing in high school it, it was my least favorite sort of assignment whenever i was like oh, i have to write an article or i have to write a, an essay about this for example but as i've gotten to know and to dive into this space a little bit more there are so many aspects within writing from style pace tone sentence structure uses of metaphors and similes, uh, rhetorical questions, uh, wittiness, humor, the, the paragraph structure, the style. There are so many aspects that I don't think a chat interface alone can pick, them up, can pick up on those things. I think what it'll ultimately come down to is training a model to learn how to do that. 
I just think it's something that cannot be prompt engineered. I think it has to be something that must be, it, it must have a couple samples of how you write. My belief is I don't think prompt engineering is good enough to kind of address those, those different nuances. That's interesting. It's also interesting that, you know, at the beginning of your education journey, writing was perhaps a barrier to uh, some other things that, that you've done and that you've ended up doing. And that takes us to Graphy AI. Tell us about what this technology is and how you see it being used in the healthcare and medical space. And I know you touched on this just a little bit at the beginning of our conversation, but if you could circle back around to that, that would be great. Yeah. So uh, long story short, the generative AI space is, I think, so far been doing great in terms of just versatility and industry usages. I think there are a lot of things that the current generative AI space and technology fall short on in regards to healthcare, because healthcare has so many facets to it from compliance and empathy and factual accuracy and the relevancy, recency, reliability, explainability, sourcing, citing, everything. And so the Graphy platform essentially says, hey, we are going to address the shortcomings of generative AI while also tackling the highly regulated space of healthcare content and bring it into one field. And so what we do is Graphy is essentially an application play where we said, hey, we are actually going to build around the healthcare persona. We're going to say everything that you personally as a writer care about and the things that you want to incorporate, we're going to build around you. And so all the way from how do I use the most important sources and the most recent reliable sources to how do I know what's being fed into this model to is it going into in, in my similar tone, like, like I don't know, professional, uh, casual, whatever it may be. And do I have the inline citations, the AMA style formatting, the references and everything located at the bottom? All those things we really care about. And so we've built this platform strictly for that one persona. And, you know, within that one persona, there are 10 different ones, because as I mentioned before, an ophthalmologist may care differently than what an orthopedic surgeon may care about, which may care about a healthcare marketer. And so in that, you have so many different little personas of people that care about how they write content that we're going to start tackling just that little sector. Hmm. So it's been really good. And the team's been awesome to kind of work with so far. So yeah, we're excited to see where this goes. So for medical writers who are new to this type of, of technology and are interested in trying it out, how would you suggest they start? So at Graphy, we actually, even before we built the platform, we said, you know, we need to be able to empower users with a way to help assess these different platforms. Every week, there are hundreds of platforms that are being launched. And so I can imagine from a user perspective, it's just a deluge of information. It's way too much, way too many platforms. Which one do I pick? And so in that, back to that example of, you know, uh, ideating and researching and outlining and writing and drafting, et cetera, we've kind of said, you know, what if we were to come up with kind of this validation framework? And so we call it the generative AI validation framework, which is essentially, you know, how do we pretty much allow users to assess these different platforms? And we've kind of built this framework off of four main pillars. One is kind of, you know, when you're using these tools, you should be asking yourself these kind of four main questions. And one is kind of that uncertainty level, number one, which is how am I sure this is the right answer? Or are there any sources that can kind of refute this information outside of this platform? That's kind of one, which is, you know, how do I make sure this what this is actually writing is correct? Mm. Number two is explainability, right? So can this algorithm tell me where it got that information from? Or how did it arrive at that conclusion? Like, how, like where did this 
platform tell me that coffee cures blindness as an example. The third thing is recency. So, you know, how recent was this data pulled or, you know, how was the algorithm trained or labeled in a way where it was able to acquire the most recent research? And to give you some sense, OpenAI's GPT goes up until I think it's like August of 2022 or something, right? So everything after August 2022, it doesn't know anything about, right? So if there's a diabetes pill that came out tomorrow, it's not going to know about it until probably the summer of next year, for example. And right. so are you going to wait that long to write content? By then you're going to be, it's going to be old news at that point. And the last part is the relevancy, which is can this content or can this platform produce content that can be understood by a non-medical audience? Or are there any cultural or linguistic barriers in understanding this content? And so you kind of have those four questions of uncertainty, explainability, recency, and relevancy. It's going to help users assess a little bit. We've built our platform around those kind of four main pillars. And so, yeah, no, I like those. I like those questions. They're they're actually really helpful to think about how trustworthy, you know, using this type of, of platform yeah. platform is. So, to, I guess to kind of wrap up a couple of questions, then one is, how can we use these? How, how can we use this platform? I mean, where do we get it? How accessible is it? Uh, which which platform? The Graphy platform. Graphy. Or? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's available right now. You can quite literally sign up today and have a free trial sign up already. And the idea is we want people to kind of experiment and see is it good for their use case. And the idea of the platform ultimately, and really any generative AI platform, is does it work with my workflow? Does it work in a way where, hey, I have this kind of researching style where I go to Google Scholar or I go to PubMed or whatever it may be, and it's able to kind of take some articles that I like, feed them in, and I can generate a draft and edit and export to Webflow or Google Docs or whatever it may be. And so I think it's a little bit about, you know, every person has their own kind of flavor of how they operate. And so, you know, we graphically try to kind of implement every possible approach of how a writer come, comes in and, and writes content. But otherwise, there's so many of the platforms out there that they can try. I'm pleased to say we're the world's first one built for healthcare. So if they find another one, great. But uh, otherwise, you know, it's really dependent upon how a writer ultimately works and, you know, what their workflow looks like. And are there other things that we haven't touched on that are important in the way that you think about how this type of technology is going to impact healthcare and medical content creation? Yeah, I think, um, I guess you mean like from a, like a disadvantages perspective or really? Yeah, just a kind of final wrap up question, you know, things that we haven't really touched on that you'd like to flag up before we we end our, our conversation here? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that I feel needs to be addressed a little bit is, you know, we're constantly talking about generating content, right? But at the end of the day, that content is going to be read or even could be a life decision for someone, right? And it's a little bit about, I feel recently, a lot of the news is, hey, what does the audience feel when it comes to reading AI-generated content? Right. Yeah, I read a little bit about that. Yeah, is it, you know, healthcare is so much about empathy. And if I'm a patient and I find out from Hospital X that, oh, by the way, this blog was written by ChatGPT, a little bit like, I really want to go to this establishment to get my surgery done or go see Dr. ABC, for example. Uh, And so, you know, I think there's so much talk about, oh, it's going to be a huge productivity improvement. But I think we've lost a little bit of sight about the patient at the end of the day and the caregivers and the families. And so I think over time, 
you know, I think patients who will become aware of AI-generated content will understand that it's really a means to an end of saying, you know, maybe, you know, they're using it to create content and that's perfectly fine. And I think it's just a phase. I think in six months, this will be a very different topic and people will be over it. But I think at the end of the day, right, it's important to understand that this is never going to be a replacement. This is never going to be something that, you know, takes the writer out of the equation or is meant to rope patients into physician patient cycles. But it's designed to kind of just be, hey, we're trying to reach out and kind of embrace that preventative care model, which is, hey, how can I incite you specifically to come to Hospital X to get your your yearly checkup, to do this, to see your specialist or whatever it may be? And so I think it's a little bit about how it's viewed right now. And I think it, we're on one side of the coin and it's going gonna, it's gonna to flip to the other side, I think, over the next few months. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Right CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding, and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Right CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. So it sounds like intention is uh, an important component in this whole conversation about generative AI. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, the the healthcare system in America, I think there's so much stuff going on. And you know, every conference that I've been to so far has always asked, are you doing generative AI? What's going on in that space? How are you implementing it? And there's just a lot of sight that's being lost in terms of who the end user is at the end of the day and who's actually using this healthcare system in America. So it's a phase and I think it'll it'll go with time, but... But I think, again, this is just designed to really empower these institutions to create enough content to ultimately bring good health to America and, and, to, and to everyone else and to the world as well. And of course, one thing that we haven't talked about is uh, data privacy. I know that this is something that, you know, a lot of people in, in the medical writing field are talking about as well as other fields. What's your take on data privacy and how can we make sure that the content that we are generating, that we are creating with creating with these tools is sensitive to data privacy? Yeah. So one of the the famous quotes within like product management is, you know, when you see a service is free, typically you and all of your actions and all your movements on that service or platform, typically you are the actual product at the end of the day. And so I think from what I recall, if you upload anything on ChatGPT, essentially, it's open AIs. They do have DBAs and other certain policies for their businesses and their APIs and things that people use. And you can choose to exclude any uploaded information from that. From a chat GPT perspective, anything you upload is a little scary because it's free for grab. There was a, I had a friend telling me a couple of weeks ago that, that uh, some, a researcher was using chat GPT to kind of take his research and he wasn't very good at writing English, but he used his research and put it in a chat GPT and use it to kind of create a more synthesized layman's version of his research. 
but it hadn't been published yet. And so it's a little bit like, oh man, like the worst part is seeing your data and someone else's content when you didn't even upload that, you didn't share that information for that. And so I would caution users to make sure any platform you use, just make sure that your data is your data and it's siloed and no one else can share it or no one else can get their hands on it. Because so many things have happened so far with ChatGPT. I don't know if you heard, there was like a Samsung leak that happened a couple months ago where some oh, coders used yeah. content or some code and boom, they, they leaked a trade secret as an example. So you just want to be careful and read the policies and make sure what you feel comfortable with. And if it's a client's material, for example, you definitely don't want to upload that to ChatGPT. If it's your own personal PHI or any medical information, you don't want to upload that. So just make sure any platform you're using, just make sure you know where the data goes, where it's stored, and whose hands you're putting it into at the end of the day. So I you're heard... having... so yeah, go, go, ahead, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying, if you're going to write like a poem or something, and it's pretty standard and pretty simple, that's perfectly fine too. But when it comes to a little bit more sensitive information, just be careful. So I've heard of people uh, talking about PHI. I've heard about, I, I've read about, I think probably on, on LinkedIn, physicians who said they anonymized PHI data and then put information about patients into ChatGPT to try and you know, generate diagnostic information. Mm-hmm. What about that kind of use case? Is what, what happens to the data there? How private is it, even though it's been anonymized? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, there are so many services out there you can kind of put in as a filter before putting anything into OpenAI. I know there's like Amazon Comprehend that has the ability to redact name, social security, date of birth, address, phone number, whatever it may be. I just, why take the risk (laughs) is my, is my take. I think if, you know, what I recommend doing actually is I would actually use ChatGPT to create a fake patient and to say, here's patient John Smith, write a fake diagnostic report or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it can be dermatology related and you can create fake patient profiles as an example, which is another scary thing. But just for the sake of testing and for the sake of seeing how good the technology is, if you're a dermatologist and you say, I don't know, you know, patient came in, rash was three inches by five inches, was this color, has been on there for this long, diagnose it. There are so many ways you can test this algorithm without actually having putting in real people information. You can just have it fake it. So again, you can kind of use it and turn it on its head on that sense. But again, why risk it? Why risk a leak in that kind of sense? Because people think that they're going to get, it's back to that quick turnaround. People think that they're going to get, you know, quick uh, analysis. And that, you know, we didn't talk about that, but that is something that definitely worries me. I hear about people putting, for instance, qualitative data, responses to open-ended questions on surveys into ChatGPT Mm. to get, you know, what they're calling analysis of the data, but what sounds to me like a kind of very flat description of Mm -hmm, somehow mm -hmm. ChatGPT has categorized this data. Do you see analysis as something that this type of technology is going to be able to do, or or maybe it's already doing it in a way that I don't really understand? (laughs) Yeah, I've seen some products out there that and platforms where you can upload, for instance, uh, like customer review analytics and you upload it and it's able to parse it and say, uh, there's one out there for restaurants, for example, where it Mm -hmm. says, you know, this dish has the best number of reviews, this dish didn't do so good. And it's all tabularized, right? So Mm -hmm. some are in Excel formats and versus just, you know, large chunks of paragraphs. I think from a workflow standpoint, ChatGPT is not really a 
business process. It can't be implemented into an actual scale. It's something that I think teases people into the generative AI space, but can't actually blow it up into an actual process. I think actually building something around the API and saying, hey, I'll just do very something very fundamental, very basic, just for my practice or just for my company alone is perfectly fine. And you get so much more flexibility about where that data goes and whose hands it's in when you go out the API route versus the chat GPT route. And for a non-tech person, that means what exactly? <laughs> so, in sorry, two sorry, minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, ChatGPT is basically a UI, like a user interface, slapped on top of what's called an API, which is basically like the secret sauce for what the, how the technology works. And you can just take that secret sauce and pull it out of ChatGPT and mm. you, know, you can go into what's called the OpenAI Playground and play around with it in there. Got it. So rather than actually using the internet, it's just the, so what really made ChatGPT blow up is they slapped a UI on top of it. They said, hey, let's make this accessible to everyone out there, make it free to sign up. And that's exactly what happened. That's how it blew up. And that's just the power of UI UX. But separately out of that, I think there's you get a lot more flexibility when you take it offline and when you actually work on it in your own instance versus on your own ChatGPT account. And we're beginning to see that more and more. And we are beginning to see that more and more people are trying to become more aware of, you know, hey, you know, I have no control over what goes into or how the data is manipulated or used or retrained in ChatGPT, but I have much more control over it and I can sign a form with OpenAI, for example, on the playground that allows me to say, don't use any of my data, do not process it, do not store it. I'm simply using you just to kind of process and give me the analytics behind whatever I need. So it's just safer and I just recommend everyone doing that first if you're going to do something like PHI, for example. Sean, where can people find you? I guess you can find me on LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> okay. And then I'll make sure to include a link to Graphy AI in the show notes. Sean Soda, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights about generative AI with listeners of Right Medicine. Thanks so much for having me, everyone. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools, and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague, or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favorable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.